look after it. If you have a Bible, we'll go to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback around, uh, underneath the seat around you. We'll be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Uh, I was reading a uh, short story earlier in the week by an author named Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if anyone is familiar with her. The story is called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Uh, It's a bit of a morbid story, just uh, disclaimer in case anyone is going to go read it. Uh, Basically, there's this family who's going on vacation to Florida, and there's a grandmother who is kind of an unsavory character in the story. I know nobody has crazy family members like that uh, in their family, Um, and she uh, is kind of causing scenes as they go along, okay? And there's this, this serial killer on the loose called the Misfit. All right, and so they're going to Florida. The Misfit is supposed to be in and around the Florida area. On the way down to Florida, they stop at a gas station, and uh, she hits up a conversation, strikes up a conversation with the owner of the gas station, and they comment on the fact that a good man is hard to find Okay, in today's world. There's just a lot of unsavory characters in the world. And so the family gets back in the car, and they head to Florida. Um, a series of events unfold, and the, the car ends up in a ditch, Okay, and they end up stranded there. Uh, on the side of a dirt road, kind of out of the way, and a van pulls up, and three men step out with guns, okay? Uh, and it is the misfit and two of his kind of gang members, and uh, they proceed to execute the family. Uh, I told you it was morbid, okay? The grandmother, though, as she is kind of pleading for her life, strikes up a conversation with the man about Jesus. She's not a strong Christian, but uh, when you're in that kind of situation, you're kind of a strong Christian in the moment, all right? Uh, you kind of find it inside of you. And she strikes up this conversation about Jesus. And the misfit responds very interestingly because it's, it's apparent that this serial killer has thought long and hard about the claims and the work of Jesus and what it would mean if it were true. And so I was reading this story, and we're in the middle of the series on the resurrection, on Jesus' resurrection. I came across this quote by the misfit, wanted to read it to you this morning, okay? This is, this is right after and during and before he, he's committing these awful deeds. He says this, If Jesus rises from the dead, raised from the dead, he was the only one that ever did, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown, this kind of southern language, he thrown everything off balance. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can, by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. And I'm reading it. We're, again, we're going through this series on the ways that the resurrection matters. And I'm reading that. I go, hey, he got it. I mean, he took it the wrong direction, okay? But he got it, right? That if Jesus really raised from the dead, in his words, it's thrown everything off balance. The world has kind of shifted on its axis, and things will never be the same. He says, so that's true, and you perceive that as reality, then the only thing you have to do is to follow, to just throw yourself into the world that he's created. And if it's not true, then you might as well do whatever you want to do in the few brief minutes you have in life. Um, We've been talking about, uh, over the last few weeks, the ways that Jesus' resurrection, again, impact our lives, the, the ways that they're significant for the kind of people we are, the kind of lives that we live. Um, and we've noticed that perhaps we have, in kind of our Christian circle, emphasized the cross to the neglect of the resurrection. So the cross is good. Jesus' death on our behalf is good and worthy and worth focusing on, but not to the extent where you forget, again, that Jesus is risen. And so you could sit in certain gospel presentations, right, and never even hear that Jesus is alive again. Because in that scheme, all you need is to be forgiven of your sins, okay? It's all about going to heaven after you die, and so you get the blood. You get Jesus' death. He died for you. You can be forgiven if you believe in him and go to heaven when you die. One author calls this uh, occurrence, this phenomena, um, a world of vampire Christians, okay? We're only in it for the blood. 
the moment you add some more stuff in there, okay, we kind of think, well, I'm not sure about this. We want something that's easy to sign up for, okay, something that will require very little of us. What do we need to do to be forgiven, right? What do we need to do? And, and one of the reasons we, we think maybe we are not as resurrection people as we should be is because the resurrection, a living Lord, requires a whole lot more out of us. It requires a whole lot more of us out of um, an accountability purposes and, and the mission that Christ calls us to. Um, if Christ is raised, then as the misfit says, everything's been thrown off balance. You and I cannot continue living our lives the way that perhaps we had designed it to. Um, the, perhaps the way we had planned it to. And we were saying, ruin me, ruin my life, the plans that I had made. Let your reality, your work come in and, and shake everything to the core. And so in week one, we talked about how the resurrection matters. Uh, because with the resurrection, you have Jesus being enthroned as Lord, as the king of the universe. And it means his kingdom project, okay? God's plan to bring heaven to earth is on track, okay? The kingdom of God is inaugurated, is started uh, in creation and history. And then last week, we saw how Jesus' resurrection purchases and provides our justification, our forgiveness, our being made right. An idea that we usually put with the cross, but which the Bible, we saw Romans 4, right? He was raised for our justification, puts with the act of Christ's resurrection. When he's raised from the dead, you and I see our verdict as his people, the verdict of life. And then this week, we're going to talk about another aspect that Jesus' resurrection matters for us, that it throws everything off balance. And, and what we'll talk about, what we'll see this morning, is that Jesus' resurrection provides you and I freedom. It sets us free to live new lives, the life of heaven on earth. Right now, today, where we are with the people we're around, it sets us free, okay? So we're going to see that in Romans chapter 6. So read with me. Uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 6. Jesus' resurrection matters because it frees us. It frees us to live new lives here and now, free from sin and death. Romans 6, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? The, 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 the issue here that, that Paul's dealing with is Roman Christians who are saying, if all the stuff in chapter 5 is true about grace being this free gift, Jesus forgives us right where we are while we're enemies, it requires nothing of us, then why don't we just keep sinning? Right? God likes to forgive. I like to sin. Sounds like a good deal. We're a match made in heaven, right? This is going to work out perfectly for us. We both get our fair share, okay? And Paul, Paul answers this, he goes, by no means, all right? The Greek is very, very strong here. The idea is, is you can't even say such things, okay? By no means. If, you, if you're living, if you're thinking that kind of way, you, you've missed out, he says. He says, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here we go, ready? So that we would no longer be, if you're underlining, here we go, enslaved to sin. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves. There's an important part there. We'll, we'll focus on that. Consider yourselves. Reckon. Realize. Remind yourselves. Come to understand 
that you are dead to sin, he says, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, who've been resurrected. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion, authority, power over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul's strategy for dealing with this problem, the question that the Romans have here, is to remind them of their identity in Christ. He says, you have been united with Christ. Again, this idea that we have um, been seeing when we're studying the death and resurrection of Christ, um, this Christian belief that somehow what happened to Jesus happens to us, that we get to participate in that, that we receive the benefits for that. So when Christ died, in a sense, we're dying. When Christ raises, in a sense, we're raising with him. What's true of Jesus is true of us. And Paul's saying, that's your identity. That's who you are. You are people who have been put to death and made new again in Christ. And he says, so therefore, this kind of sin activity is not how you should be acting. He corrects them with an affirmation of their identity. This is very interesting, okay? He doesn't go straight to the behavior problems. He goes to their identity. He says, the person that you are, who you are truthfully, is not the person who should be acting in that sort of a way. Imagine if you have a kid, okay, the kid is misbehaving, and you say to the kid, all right, you're worthless, you're stupid, and you're never going to amount to anything. All right, you just said your deeds, the way you're acting now confirms what I thought about your identity. And the kid kind of locks that identity in. That's a much different strategy from going to that same kid who's doing things that are stupid and worthless and that won't let him amount to anything and saying, hey, you're a good kid. You know better than that. You're smarter than that. You're worth more than that. You can amount to so much more than that. Right? You're saying live up to your identity. This is who you really are. And this kind of activity is not behooving of you. It's not behooving that identity. Paul says, you've been united with Christ. He doesn't say, obviously I knew it. Y'all are wicked, awful, sinful people. He says, no, no, no. Okay, remember who you are. You are those who've been united with Christ's death and with his resurrection. And this identity changes everything for them. But I want you to look here in verse 6 when Paul says um, that we have been crucified with him in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is one of the, the situations, the problems that scripture says that you and I are in as humans. We're in a state of slavery, a state of slavery to sin. In fact, this is one of the most common ways that the Bible talks about sin. We normally think of sin as being just this action that we commit, again, that makes us guilty, which would mean we only need forgiveness. But one of the most common things said about sin in the New Testament particularly is that it is a power. It's personified, particularly in Paul. Sin is something that's bigger than human beings. It's something that, um, and from Genesis, um, when the first murder occurs, God comes to the murder and says, sin is going to stalk you. It wants to master you. It's going to follow you around. It, it becomes this, this thing that's bigger than human beings and enslaves them, that gets them stuck. And the scriptures say that sin rules. It reigns in various ways in creation. One of these ways is through death. Paul says in Romans 5, sin now reigns through death for those who are in Adam. Sin brings death into the world. And if you watch carefully, sin brings death, and you can flip that. And death now brings sin. So because we're afraid of dying, because we're afraid of death, we now participate in sinful activities against our neighbors, against our family, against ourselves. We're afraid of death. We're trying to protect our own life. Look out for number one. Sin reigns through death. Death is the last enemy to, defeat, to be defeated according to the scriptures. Sin also reigns through the law. Paul says. 
The law is a good thing, but when sin comes in, it starts using the law for its own purposes to reinforce its reign, just like death does. In a sense, it's interesting because death repays the favor of sin. So sin brings death into the world, and then death says, oh, thank you for that. I'll help reinforce your reign. I'll help keep people bound to who you are. Again, these are not usually the terms we think about with sin and with death. But the Bible paints them as these like powers, these forces, these things that actually influence and dictate and control us. To the scriptures, you and me, we're not just people who make bad choices. We're people who are stuck in slavery, sometimes called dead in sin. I mean, it's a very, very grave picture that the, the scriptures paint for us. I think sometimes we don't let the reality of the fall, so human rebellion, really hit us as deeply as it's portrayed in the scriptures. Where sin seems to have affected us at the very innermost beings of who we are, in our imaginations, in our hearts, in our desires, and don't miss it even outside of us. It controls us, it dictates us, it enslaves us. We're enslaved to sin. This is the problem that, one of the problems that sin brings into the world. So we need to be forgiven, yes, but we also need to be free. These are two parts of the same salvation. Forgiveness and freedom. I think most of us, if we were going to kind of outline how we view the world and our participation in the world, and there are reasons for this philosophically, historically, okay, but I think most of us would would think of the world and think of us in the world and say that we are, human beings, independent agents, okay, with what we call like a libertarian free will. We can choose to go right and we can choose to go left, Okay, we're free agents, independent free agents, and we exist in a more or less neutral world. Okay, the world is not slanted either way. Again, at any kind of given moment, we can choose to go left or choose to go right. Unfortunately, most of us, depending on who you talk to, usually just make the wrong choice. Now, if that's the, the situation that you're in, okay, the, again, the main thing you need is forgiveness. You need forgiveness, and then you just need to do the right thing. You need maybe a little bit of instruction, so this is where you get a lot of self-help, okay? If I just need to make the right choices and I have it within myself, the capability of making those right choices, I just need, let's say, like the three or four steps for a healthy marriage, right? I mean, I just need to figure out the three or four places I've gone wrong because I can make those choices and there's nothing going to influence me or keep me from making those choices once I've identified them. And then I just need to make those choices. Again, the reality that the, the scriptures paint, okay, in this sin-enslaved world, this radically fallen world, is that you and I are slaves. We're not independent free agents. We have sinned, and with that sin, the world has been altered to where, again, it's not a neutral playing field that we're on. It's a radically fallen, desperately evil playing field. Even if we could identify the right choice and want the right choice, it's still almost impossible to attain. Surely your experience backs this up. Have you ever known the right thing to do and then still didn't do it? And then suffered consequences from it? And then still did it? I mean, the human experience the testifies to this, right? I mean, we're, even when we know the right thing to do, even when we know the consequences coming for us because of that, I mean, we're just stuck. We're not free agents, and it's a very tilted playing field. And the problem is not that we make mistakes. The problem is that, in a sense, it's hard to not make a mistake. We're in this intensely enslaved world. Think of sin uh, in Paul as like a tyrannical landlord. 
that has this claim on you. You owe this debt. And it's this brutal, demoralizing landlord who demands all kinds of unjust things from you. And sin makes these demands on our lives, and then it, it backs them up with threats. And so the world we live in, okay, you get these sin demands. Sin comes and whispers and says, you need to do this. You need to spend your money this way. You need to treat people this way. You need to fulfill your desires this way. And if you don't, you're not going to get this, and you're not going to get this, and you'll miss out on this. And if you don't protect yourself at all costs, you'll get taken advantage of. You'll get hurt. It makes these demands, and it backs them up with these, these threats. We could use money as, a, a, as an example, okay, this morning. In the world that we live in, very few things are neutral. It doesn't mean they're inherently bad, but very few things are neutral, and money is one of those things, okay? We live in a very materialistic society, very consumeristic society, and watch what happens when human beings get money. We get money, and our world fundamentally changes when we get money in a way that would encourage us to sin and participate in evil behaviors. I don't know if you're familiar with the rap song, okay, if you're in the rap game, but mo money, mo problems, right? There's this weird thing that happens when you get more money. It's crazy. There are more things to pay for, right? I mean, can you, can you testify to that, right? Your bills go up. There are more things to pay for. And your very imagination changes. What you think you need to live changes. So it's before, right? If you were on ramen all week, that was just you and Jesus on ramen. You're going to fast together, okay? You're going to figure it out. There'll be some bonding time. But then you get a little bit of money, and all of a sudden what you need changes drastically. And the way you need to spend money changes drastically. I mean, your very personality changes. It's not a neutral tool in a sinful, fallen, enslaved world. It gets used for evil purposes. And so I know that God is going to hold accountable people with wealth. I mean, from cover to cover, that's a very strong message in the scriptures. And we could def- uh, define two kinds of wealth, okay? Global wealth, so like on a global scale, so that's all of us. And then like American wealth, okay? We're like a step up, so it's like wealth compared to the other wealthy in America, okay? And God's very clear that there is, there's going to be a big day of accounting for how you spent your money if you had more than you needed, when people around you are dying. I mean, it's a sober kind of reality, okay? And I'm aware of that too. But I still have a hard time. I still have a hard time setting limits on how I spend money and where to give my money away and, and where to, 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 to live generously. I mean, it's a very difficult thing for me. It's almost like the game is slanted against me. Even when I want to, even when I realize that, money itself just kind of controls me and stuff kind of controls me the world i live in kind of sucks me into this mode of existence that's near impossible to break out of and it's it's impressive to me that christians are becoming more and more aware that the spending choice they make they're responsible for those as well um so a lot of the products that the western world is built off of are made by slaves are made by child slaves i mean they're they're um this is getting more and more attention, okay? Um, a lot of the candy, stuff like that. Uh, and again, it's kind of impressive to me how many Christians are now admitting, right, that we're responsible for the choice we make with what we buy, with where that money ends up going um, to pay for slaves, to pay for free people. So th- there's like fair trade products now, okay? Um, lots of people at church who know a whole lot about this if you're interested. Um, but so you pay a little bit extra for chocolate, right, because they're actually paying full wages instead of making children do it, okay? 
um, fair trade, right? And, and so, I mean, it's really actually impressive to me that Christians, in my experience, have been able to get on board with this and been able to say, yeah, you're right. What I, I'm responsible for how what I buy is made. I can't just ignore everything else and just do point of purchase with me. And they're even willing to say, I'll pay a little bit more money to try to ensure that justice is happening behind the scenes here. But again, it's my experience and the experience of people I know, even knowing that, even being convicted of that, it's near impossible to do when you're shopping, when you're out in the world, when you're with your friends and your neighbors and your family. I mean, it's like we're stuck in this situation. And it's like there's, again, we call it like a super personal power. It starts with us. It starts with our choices, right? But then it takes on a life of its own. I mean, I wasn't born into a world that is materialistic and consumeristic, that feeds us from day one that our worth is found in stuff. And that above all else, including above obeying God, right, you should spend your money to provide pleasure and satisfaction for you, however that is defined. I didn't create that world. That wasn't like my idea when I was 13 years old. I was like, this will be good, right? I was born into that. I mean, I had no way to, to swim out of those waters. Now, we did that, right? We brought that on with our greed, with our sin, but it takes on this life of its own, and it starts to control and manipulate us. We have words for this. We see this elsewhere in life, the free market, right? I mean, we talk about the way the market moves and what it dictates and where it goes, as if it's something bigger than the decisions that we make. I mean, we make decisions, but then it kind of moves on its own, and it guides us, and it moves us. And sin is this, this kind of power in the scriptures. It's a much bigger problem than just um, unfortunate choices that we make. We might say that sin's not something that we choose as much as it's something that has chosen us. Sin is not just, again, unfortunate choices. It's something that's on the inside of us and even more scarily on the outside of us. It controls us and moves us and dictates us. And it traps us in patterns of destruction. And it traps us in behaviors of death anti-life. Unrest, no peace, no joy. And we're like blind people who are flailing around in the dark. And even when you get to the most successful, most beautiful parts of society, you find an underbelly of desperation and anxiety and evil. It's as if there's no escape. Slaves to sin. But it's into this situation that Christ comes, and the scriptures say the good news is Christ not only forgives the slaves, but he frees them. He bursts them out of captivity. He starts a whole new world where they're no longer bound to those powers. Think of the landlord analogy again, okay? So you've got this debt to this landlord, and someone comes in and pays the debt, gets you out of there, and lets you go live on their property. You've been taken out of that authority, out of that reign. That's what Paul's saying has happened here when we're united to Christ, he says through baptism. Baptism is the symbol of our being united with Christ. Think of a marriage, okay? And so like the ring that you have uh, when you get married, it's a sign that you have been uh, united in this relationship. In this case, it would be like you've married a rich person, right? You're now benefiting from the things that they had through your union. You didn't have the money, but when you married them, all of a sudden now that money is yours. What's true of Jesus is true of us. We've been united with him in his death and his resurrection. We've been, we've been freed from sin. Um, so, so Paul says when we're baptized, we go into, we're immersed in the water. And that's like us being buried, us dying to this old world, to this old self. Again, that was enslaved to sin, that was stuck in these patterns of destruction. 
there's one church I'm aware of that when they baptize people, they do it in a coffin. Uh, so morbid, but it gets the imagery, okay? So, I mean, you get a coffin with some water in it, and you go baptize, okay? I'm sure people have the fear, right, that they're going to close it, okay? Horror movie style. Um, and then, apparently, when they do their funerals, it's full of baptism language, as if your physical death is the final and ultimate baptism, where you now completely and fully enter into Christ's death and expect to be raised again to new life. You're dead to sin. Again, you've been free from the angry landlord. And now it doesn't always feel that way, and you still live in a world where that master is still around. So again, you're on the new landlord's property, but the old landlord comes and is banging on the door, and is demanding this and demanding that, and it, it kind of tempts you. It's your old lifestyle. You're not sure if he still has power over you or not. And Paul's saying, eventually, you have to tell them, you have no more authority over me. You have no claim over me. I owe you nothing. You have no claim over me. I'm under a new reign. I'm under a new king. I've died to that world, to that system. I mean, I think if we're honest, most of us feel like on a day-to-day basis, there's been very little change in our lives. We feel like we, we really haven't died to sin in a real transformative way in our own lives. And Paul's first, first instruction to these Christians is to say in verse 11, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. He says, you've got, to, you've got to realize this in your mind. You've got to recognize this. When you celebrate Jesus' death and then his resurrection, you've got to see yourself being freed. You've got to see yourself walking out of that old life of death and being invited into a newness of life. You have to let that be your formative reality despite your experiences and despite the temptations around you. I mean, think of, so a slave in the South, okay, shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation. You've been told that you are free, but the world around you might not look like you're free all the time. And what you need to do is actually believe that you have been set free, that these people have no more claim over you. That you can at any moment walk out if you want to. You can do whatever you would please do. You've been given freedom. David Bentley Hart says this. I love this quote. He says, Easter should make rebels out of all of us. When you see Jesus rise from the dead, it should make rebels out of all of us. People who are willing to buck the system. Who are willing to hear the threats that sin whispers to us. You won't be satisfied. You won't have life. You'll be taken advantage of. You'll be beaten up. You'll be poor. No one will take care of you. Hear them and go, those are all lies. I've seen Seth and I've seen uh, I've seen sin and I've seen death defeated. Colossians, Paul would say, they've been embarrassed. He's humiliated them. He's made a mockery out of them all in front of everybody. He just rises from the dead and says, these have no power. I've defeated them. And those who are in me... Likewise, experience none of their power, none of their dominion. They've been free. And Paul says, you have to understand that. You have to remember that. You have to reckon that to be true in your own life. Martin Luther, when he was tempted, so if you remember Martin Luther, the, the Protestant reformer, he was a very spiritually disturbed man. Went through intense times of anxiety and depression in his life where he thought that the Satan was um, attacking him, was going to kill him, was um, going to send him to hell, those kind of things. And his common refrain to the devil was, I've been baptized. And it seems odd for us, because as Protestants, we think, right, we want to be clear that baptism doesn't save us. Um, but again, 
he's building off of Paul's signature that baptism is a sign. It's like the ring on our finger, right? It's like someone who's maybe at a bar chatting up with a pretty girl, and their friend comes over and goes, hey, what's that on your finger? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's my, that's my ring, right? Someone comes up and says, you're not married, right? You won't be loved. You won't be protected. And you look down and go, I have the ring. I'm united with this person. I'm in this relationship of promise with them, this covenant with them. This is shorthand. Luther's I've been baptized is shorthand for I'm united with Christ. No matter what is coming my way, I've, been died, I've, I've died and I've risen with him. I've been united with him. I've been baptized with him. And then Paul says we've been made alive in Christ. We've been risen to newness of life. We're able to be transformed and live a new life. So not only is the good news that you and I are given this new status as free people, and it's, it's this true thing, but we're given the power to live that kind of life. Paul would say in Romans 8 that the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells inside of believers and works the same life out in their bodies here and now. I mean, it, you don't get much more remarkable language than that. That when you and I see Jesus rise from the dead, when he's resurrected, we're seeing the kind of life and power available to us. We're given the grace to walk in that newness of life. I mean, imagine uh, an alcoholic. So somebody who is engaged in an addictive behavior that is destructive. So, I mean, the Bible says all sin it does this, right? All sin leads to death. It is, it's destructive in its very nature. It's soul-crushing. It's life-destroying. Um, but we don't often see it that way, right? I mean, white lies, stuff like that. doesn't seem like it's that destructive. But I think most of us realize, right, alcoholism has this tendency to destroy relationships, destroy families, uh, destroy even one's own physical body. So imagine someone who is stuck in this alcoholic addiction, which, is, which goes well beyond a try or don't try situation, right? I mean, you don't tell an addict, just stop doing it. As if that never occurred to them, right? What a great plan. I just won't drink anymore. I should have thought of that, right? No, the addict can't not drink. That's what makes an addiction, right? They're slaves. It's actually, I think, when you and I see addictions, I think it should serve as a testimony to us, a witness to us of what our real reality actually is in sin. Where we often think we're not as enslaved to sin as we are. We should see that in and, and, and back up in humility and repentance and realize that maybe we're not as control in our own lives as we think we are either even though it feels like that person's way more out of control so an alcoholic engaged in these destructive behaviors and then imagine someone going to the alcoholic and saying you are freed Ta-da, I've, been, I've rescued you, I've saved you and the alcoholic continues to drink thinking they're freed or thinking they're forgiven and their body is destroyed and their marriage is destroyed and their family is destroyed everything around them is, is crushed and then wonder how much salvation they're experiencing. I mean, how true is it to say they've been rescued, and even that they've been rescued from their sins? This is what Paul, I think, would say to a lot of Christians who say they've been saved from their sins, who still live completely stuck in their sins. He said, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, what sense is it true that you've been saved from your sins if you're still as stuck in them as everybody else in the world? Sin is not just this bad behavior that God disproves of. Sin is anti-life. It brings destruction. It brings division. It crushes souls. It births death. And in a real way, this is going to sound controversial, but in a real way, according to the scriptures, obedience is salvation itself. What does it mean to be rescued? 
It means to be able to experience the life that's offered to those who would walk in a certain way. There's a path laid out where life is found, where peace is found, where joy is found, where relationships work correctly, where God is worshipped, where the soul is at peace, at rest. Hauerwas, Stanley Hauerwas, a, a theologian, often says that you can't separate Jesus' teachings from his work. You can't separate obedience from salvation. He, he would say to live the Sermon on the Mount is to experience salvation. There's no such thing as, as being saved and then, again, living in this state of unpeace and unrest and destruction and death. To be saved is to be freed. It's, it is to be forgiven, but it's also to be free to experience this life here and now. And it's not just a negative thing, Paul would say, but it's also, it's also a positive thing. It involves learning new behaviors. It involves walking and growing in holiness and newness of life. Look in verse uh, 15 with me as we keep reading. Paul's going to make a really interesting claim here that, that I don't think we would expect as he's talking about us being freed from sin. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Kind of the same statement he's made in verse 1. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So Paul's going to say, unfortunately, you're a slave whether you want to be or not. Okay, Either way, you're a slave. You're either going to be a slave, though, that leads to death, or the kind of slave that leads to righteousness, a slave of Christ, a slave of obedience, he says. It's a very interesting um, way of speaking there. But he says, thanks be to God, though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So here's what Paul would say. First, you need to consider yourself dead to sin. Second, you need to act like you're dead to sin. You need to walk in obedient ways and newness of life. And the good news is we've been given the power to do that. We've been given the spirit to do that. We take small but real steps as slaves of righteousness. And in so doing, we become free. Now, this is interesting because Paul says your freedom will be found in becoming a slave. Just to a different master. And we go, well, that that doesn't seem like the language works there correctly. But what if you thought of it as an instrument? Okay? So say a guitar. And you're given a guitar and someone tells you that this guitar has life. There's joy and life and beauty to be found in this guitar. I mean, you can find this relaxation, this soul-giving purpose, okay? It can bring you close to God, can communicate in ways that words cannot. And they say, you're free to play this guitar and find all the beauty in it. So you, you get a pick, you put your fingers on it like you've seen, and you make some god-awful noises. And you go, this does not sound good, this is not joy, this is not life, this is not peace, anything like that. What you would need to do to actually find the freedom to play that guitar is you need to make yourself a slave to someone who can play the guitar. You need to go under the master, the, the tutorage, tutelage of someone who can play the guitar very well. And you need to commit yourself to long and intense periods of obeying and practicing and going through the same thing and playing scales and practicing notes and learning uh, a chord theory and music theory and things like that. And then once you become a slave you'll find increasing amounts of freedom to live and explore and have beauty. So Trevor is amazing at the guitar. Trevor, true or false, it took you a lot of practice and time to get there. 
And it took you a lot of obeying other people, just what they told you to do for hours and hours and hours. And now you can put a guitar in Trevor's hands and he can experience this beautiful freedom that you and I cannot. Here's the point. If we're stuck in these ways, if we have no practice of living life, what we need to do is we need to take these small steps of obedience. And with each step, what you'll find is more freedom. It's the weird way that freedom works in a society of slaves. We take a step of obedience and a step of obedience and a step of obedience. And with each step, we encounter and live in a world more free to experience joy and peace and truth and righteousness. Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and then live in it. Take these steps of obedience. As you used to offer yourself to sin, that master, now offer yourself to a new master. And in that new master, you find increasing amounts of life and joy and goodness. This newness of life that Christ has come to offer to us. Desmond Tutu uses a phrase. He says that God has a dream for the world. This is his way of talking about the plan that God has for creation. What he desires creation to look like, to reflect. And he says the dream actually is it's kind of twofold. It's a personal dream for your life and it's a dream for the world around you. And our freedom, transformation that, that comes through the resurrection works this way as well. We're to be personally transformed. We're to say to ourselves that we're dead to sin and alive in Christ. And we're to walk in these steps of obedience and transformation. Experience that newness of life slowly but surely. And then two, we're supposed to imagine the world around us and what it would look like if it was slaves to righteousness as well. If the larger systems of society function for justice and peace. Worshiping Christ. You don't have to, I think the good news of the resurrection is you don't have to wait until you die to come alive. Right now, in the present, for those united with Christ, this life is available. You don't have to wait until you die to come alive. Paul says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. So what are ways that you could remind yourself of that truth? What are ways that you could consistently live in that reality? Maybe write it on a post-it note, okay? Keep it in your pocket. Write it somewhere on a mirror, okay? Maybe even recite this with a family member or a friend in the morning. I'm dead to sin and alive in Christ. Today, by the power of the Spirit, I will live out that identity. I will live up to my identity in Christ. When sin comes knocking on my door, I'll say, you're not welcome here anymore. You have no hold over me. I am not bound to obey you like I used to be bound to obey you. Even if it feels like that. Because I'm in Christ, and Christ is risen. We reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And then maybe how would we practice this newness of life? What are steps that we could take? Small but faithful steps of obedience. We did a series a while ago on virtue, on, on how it's these, these small habits that we build up that end up transforming us into Christ's people, Christ's likeness. What are these small habits that we should be taking? What are these, these small steps of slavery that lead us into freedom? You see, in the scriptures, God's commands, his instructions, his truth are always meant to lead us to life. They're not these arbitrary rules put forth by, by this arbitrary power who just wants his way to get done for no good reason. 
It's, it's, it's a God looking at creation, engaging these destructive habits and saying there's a better way, there's a way of life, there's a way of peace. And the good news of the cross and Jesus' resurrection that he comes in and he frees the captives. And to those who are blind, he gives sight. And to those who are sick, he heals. And to those who are stuck in their sin, he made alive. And when we reduce the gospel to forgiveness, we miss out on that transforming power in the present. We might even miss out on salvation itself. I mean, we, we, we so truncate Christ's work that it becomes a shell of what it is scripturally, or what it is historically. These are just like rebels out of all of us. You've got these early Christians who do have this sense of the spirit living inside of them. Um, I read an interesting reading. So you remember when Jesus resurrected, he comes to his disciples, and some of them are doubting, which is a really interesting part of the story. But, but there's a guy named Thomas who just constantly doubts. And usually we think of that again as like doubting. He's just doubting. He doesn't have the right faith. He needs to believe. I read a reading, though, that was very interesting. I've never seen this before, where it said maybe Thomas was just sad because he'd rather Jesus still be dead. And I thought, well, that's, that's weird. I've never heard of that before. He said maybe Thomas knew, maybe he had this, this feeling inside of him that if Jesus was still dead, it would be sad, sure. I mean, it'd be heartbreaking. His world would be upside down. But he knew that if Jesus was actually alive in front of him, that that would change everything. And that that would require so much of him. And that, as the misfit would say, the world would have been thrown off balance. And may you and I come to believe that Jesus has risen, that we're freed, that we're united with him, and that newness of life is available to us, eternal life, here and now, in the present. As we're transformed and as we are agents of transformation by the power of God's spirit, by the reckoning as we acknowledge the truth of what Jesus has done on our behalf. The resurrection matters because you and I needed to be freed. And freed we were.